Um, I'm going to ask a, a fairly basic question to start off with this evening. And the question is this. What do you think prayer and worship sounds like? What do you think prayer and worship sounds like? Now, that might depend, the answer that you give, perhaps on your personality. It might depend on your background, or it might depend on your experience. So if you've been in this service for a while, you might think that prayer and worship sounds like what we do at P's and G's at 7 o'clock, with a band, a couple of vocalists, the occasional cello, keyboards, drums, if we're fortunate enough to let Josh loose uh, on the drum kit. And it's about modern worship songs. If you come to our 9 o'clock service, it's more quiet and reflective, and prayer and worship there sounds more like traditional hymns, like, Be Thou My Vision. And the amazing thing I, I find is that often now, Christians under the age of 25 haven't got a clue about hymns, because they haven't been in the environment of hymns. They don't know what hymns are, apart from the about five that we might throw into an 11 o'clock or a 7 o'clock service. Or maybe you come from a more reflective background. You've heard of the community in France called Teze and uh, the chants where they just sing again, Oh Lord, hear my prayer. Oh Lord, hear my prayer. They just go on and on and it sort of takes you up and it's immersive and it's wonderful, but it's slightly odd and different. Maybe if you come from a choral tradition at the cathedral, then for you, prayer and worship are about, Oh Lord, open our lips and our mouths shall declare your praise. And now you're thinking, okay, this guy's... No, no. It's the only way that they let me sing on this stage. I've, I've got to just take, take it by myself. Um, maybe you think prayer and worship is speaking in tongues or singing in tongues. Occasionally, you might hear somebody in Peace and Cheese uh, just start to pray in a strange language that isn't Glaswegian. They're praying in a language that obviously isn't of this planet. It's a gift of, of speaking in tongues. God has given me that gift of, of speaking in tongues, and I use it quite often in personal prayer. Maybe it's just silence. When you think of prayer, or when you think of worship, it's about slowing down, being quiet, and just stopping. But what if prayer and worship also sounds very differently to any of those mediums? any of those styles that I've just referenced? What if prayer and worship sounds like, ah! Or what if prayer and worship sounds like, ugh? Anne's going to come and read tonight's passage from Psalm 13 that maybe helps us to see prayer and worship in a different light. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? 
How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. I think I'd have been about 23 years of age. I was doing an internship, like the four interns that we have here at P's and G's, Fraser and Simeon and Hannah and Kirsten. And one of the jobs that I was given, you may be surprised having just heard me sing, in that particular church was to lead worship. I used to be a worship leader. I know, it's, you can understand that now, having heard me sing. Uh, but I used to lead worship on a regular basis. I didn't play a musical instrument. Um, I was old school. And uh, just, you know, with the beauty of my voice, carried the congregation. I just out of university, and the university uh, CU that I'd been a part of, we experienced a, a fresh move of the Holy Spirit. It must have been the Holy Spirit because it was Hull. And uh, all of a sudden, Christians started to come alive, and our CU went from about 100 people to about 250 in a term. It was a quite remarkable time to be there. So I was quite used to more exuberant worship, charismatic worship, lively worship, because that was what we had in the University Christian Union, where I was. And now here I was in this Baptist church in South Manchester, where I'd become a Christian, now on the staff, doing an internship and leading worship most weeks. And I began to get quite frustrated. And I began to get quite frustrated because I would encourage the congregation to sing. I would encourage the congregation to lift their hands. I would encourage the congregation to smile as they sang. And it wasn't going down well. And I'll never forget after one particular evening service where I'd been doing my best to encourage and to exhort and to draw out people in worship and to inspire them in worship... A married couple in their mid-50s came to see me at the end of the service, and the, the wife said, Dave, can I have a word? And I said, yes. And in my arrogance, in my youth, in my immaturity, I thought she was going to say, you know, I love it when you lead us in worship. I just think it's fantastic when you encourage us to be more expressive in worship. But I'll never forget the words that she said to me. She said, week after week, over the past three or four months, you've been encouraging us to smile in worship. And I understand what you're trying to do, and I understand why you're saying it. But you need to know why some of us aren't smiling. You need to know that four months ago, I was diagnosed with cancer. And to be honest, Dave, I'm clinging onto my faith with my fingertips. It's a miracle that I'm even here in church. It's a miracle that I'm even able to stand and sing some of the songs that you choose. Brackets, the ones you choose aren't great. And then you tell me to smile. Then you tell me to lift my arms in worship. Then you tell me that my outward expression must be happier and more joyful. Dave, I need to tell you that you're not helping me to worship. 
you're putting a barrier between me and God. And you're making it really hard for me to sing the songs that we sing. And that was really hard for me to hear. But I was so grateful that she had the courage and the love to do that. And over the years, I've reflected on her ability and confidence and strength to still come to worship, to come to church week by week, Sunday by Sunday, when actually everything inside her was saying, God, where are you? When everything inside her was saying, God, you've forgotten me. When everything inside her was saying, God, can I trust you? When everything inside her was saying, the last thing I feel like doing is smiling in the way that that idiot at the front is telling me to smile. You see, I'd forgotten and hadn't really experienced or learnt yet that for thousands of years, Christians and Jewish people before them have described that type of prayer and worship as the prayer of the forsaken. Praying to what in Latin is called the Deus Absconditus, the God who is hidden, in what is often known as the cloud of unknowing in the dark night of faith. What do you do when life is tough? What do you do when the circumstances and situations that you or I are in cause real problems to our faith? Where somehow there's a disconnect between what we sing on a Sunday perhaps, or perhaps what we've known of God in the past but aren't feeling in the present. How do you pray when your prayers seem to go unanswered? How do you pray when your back is against the wall? How do you pray when you pray prayers and they seemingly bounce back off the ceiling and you get absolutely nothing in return? Do you have to pretend that everything is okay? Do you have to pretend that everything is fine? Do you have to simply declare words of faith and sing the songs even though you don't feel like it? Do you have to deny what is actually going on in your life? Do you have to fake a smile for your prayers to be acceptable? Well, what I think we find in the Psalms, these book of 100, this book of 150 prayers in what we call the Old Testament, is that time and time again, the Psalms reflect honest worship and honest prayer. I was reading this week and discovered that 66 out of the 150 psalms are what are called psalms of lament. That's over a third. Over a third of the psalms in the book of Psalms are psalms of lament, where the author, the writer, the composer is saying, God, where are you? God, you've forgotten me. God, I don't know if you even exist. God, I don't know whether you can be trusted. God, where are you? Where time and time again, the author, the writer, the composer shouts to God, cries out against God, rages against God. Paul was making the point this morning in the 11 o'clock service that it's not often that we hear songs of lament in church. 
If we're honest, many of our modern worship songs struggle with this whole idea of lament. We'd far rather write confident, loud, cheerful songs. There aren't very many songs of lament. And what I found striking about Paul's talk this morning was people still do write songs of lament. But actually, we're far more likely to hear them on Spotify or Apple Music written by secular composers than we are in the church. People are writing songs of lament. People are writing songs that say, God, where are you? People are writing songs that say, life just doesn't seem to make sense. People are writing those types of songs, but they're more likely to be in the charts than they are in the church. 66 out of 150 psalms are psalms of lament. And we find such a psalm in Psalm 13 that Anne read for us a few moments ago. It's a very short prayer, six verses. We're told in the title, if you've got a Bible, you'll see there it's entitled, A Psalm of David. So we don't know whether the psalm was written actually by David himself or it was written for David. We don't know exactly what is going on that prompted either David or somebody on David's behalf to write this psalm. It might be when the king, Saul, takes against David and tries to kill him. David goes from being a favorite of Saul, because Saul is jealous because he realizes that David is his successor, and he he tries to kill him, and, and, and he pursues him for months, perhaps even years. And David has to hide for his life. He has to run for his life. He he hides in caves. He hides in all sorts of places because the king is out to kill him. Or it might have been written when David actually became king and towards the end of his life, one of his sons, Absalom, revolts against David and tries to seize power. He tries to, to, to have a coup against his dad and he tries to seize the throne and there's a civil war in Israel as Absalom, his son, tries to wage war against David the king. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's an illness that's afflicted David. But David is in a really tough situation. On one level, it doesn't matter. It might be death, it might be illness, it might be whatever David is going through, just as it might be whatever we are going through, where these psalms, these psalms of lament and verses like the ones that we have in front of us this evening, speak so powerfully of what we actually feel. They trace a journey that every single one of us will go through at some time or another. If you're not going through it now... You probably have gone through it, and you certainly will go through it. So let's look briefly at this psalm. Firstly, the first two verses, a cry of despair. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? This isn't polite prayer. This isn't nice prayer. This isn't prayer as it should be. This is gutsy, raw, honest prayer. This is prayer coming straight from the heart. This is David actually saying or singing what he feels. 
He feels that God has forgotten him. How long, O Lord, how long? God's face seems hidden from David. The enemy, whether it's Saul or Absalom or illness or death, whatever it is, is causing real distress. As I say, it might be the cry of David. It might be the cry of a nation even. It might even have become the cry of Jesus because Jesus himself knew what it was for God the Father to feel distant and remote. When he's on the cross, Jesus uses one of the Psalms of Lament, Psalm 22, and cries out to his heavenly Father, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But Jesus was on the cross for six hours. And it's very easy to imagine that one of the Psalms that went through his head was this Psalm as well as Psalm 22. It was Psalm 13. Think about Jesus saying these words, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? It's exactly the sort of thing that Jesus would have said on the cross. As God the Father withdrew from the Son and the Trinity itself was divided and split because of human sinfulness. But if we're honest, it's not just the cry of David. It's not just the cry of Jesus. It's our cry too. Where are you, God? Why have you forgotten me? I don't know, but God knows the situations of every single person in this church tonight. And he knows what's going in your life. He knows what's going on in your heart. He knows what's going on in that relationship. He knows what's going on in that family member. He knows what's going on with a husband or a wife or, or a friend of yours or, or a son or a daughter or a grandma or a grandpa, whatever. He knows, and he knows that inside... You echo these words, how long, Lord, how long have you forgotten me? Why have you forgotten me? It's striking that if you think about Jesus, even Jesus himself knows what it is to have his prayer go unanswered. The perfect sinless incarnation of God the Son, God become a human being, knows what it is to feel abandoned by the Father. So he cries out to God. Verses 3 and 4, he has a cry for help. Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. This really is a heartfelt stuff. It's, it's almost childlike. One of the things that children do, and um, used to drive me batty when our kids were, were young, but they constantly repeat your name or title, but not in an affectionate way. Mum, 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 mum. I knew they were looking for Kathy at that point. I wasn't that daft. But then it would start when Kathy was away at work or something. Dad, 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 dad. And sometimes it wasn't expressed with even that as emotion. It was dad, 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 dad. It was like a sort of just stop it. No, I didn't do that. Um, but inwardly, that's what I felt. I know what my name is. My name is dad. But what they were basically saying was, 
notice me. I'm over here. Please, notice me. Notice me. They were tugging on my, my jacket or my shirt or whatever. Dad, 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 dad. Yes. That's what the psalmist is saying in verses 3 and 4. Dad, 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 dad. God, 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 God. Will you notice me? Will you see what I'm going through? Will you see what I'm feeling? Will you take notice of what I'm going through? It's a cry of desperation. Verse 3 is even a cry that someone has suggested is the cry of a soldier on a battlefield. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. Not even any of my kids said that. They weren't that desperate. But you see how a soldier could say those words on a, on a battlefield? Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. David is afraid and alone, perhaps himself facing death, it feels like. His enemy is moving in for the kill, boasting about victory over him, verse 4, and my enemy will say, I have overcome him. David is facing perhaps what he thinks is the end, but as he pours out his heart, as he tells God how he is feeling, something happens. As David tells God what is really on his heart and mind, something begins to shift. I'm going to ask Josh uh, to come and briefly share a story um, that happened to Josh. We were chatting, and Josh said, I'd really like to share this story of of something that happened to me when I was in a a similar situation. So Josh, just a a bit of context. You had been involved in a really bad road traffic accident, Um, that wasn't your fault, Um, but it was serious, it was really serious. Um, Your girlfriend at the time was still in hospital. You'd been kept in hospital overnight for observation. You were still suffering uh, from concussion. And there you are. What happened next? Uh, Yeah. Um, So, yeah, the the car accident was really serious. Um, I was going about... Um, 70 on the motorway and flipped the car uh, for some reason hit the central reservation flipped the car rolled the car destroyed the car um, I was actually in hospital for nearly two weeks and um, had to have surgery and broke bones and um, all sorts of crazy things and uh, it's, it's a massive story and, and God's faithfulness in it was incredible the healings and the miracles and all this kind of stuff um, but my, my injuries were very on the surface. I was, I was beat up and stitches and all this kind of stuff. And it was serious and they were worried about uh, the concussion and me not being able to uh, make new memories and things like that was still kind of going on. Uh, but my girlfriend at the time was, was in a coma. She had to be put into a coma. She banged her head really badly. And the, the brain injury that she suffered from, they, they, sometimes doctors, they'll, they'll put you in a coma to try and control the swelling of your brain so it doesn't cause lots of damage. And they were, they were very much like, we don't think she'll walk again. We don't think she'll talk again. Uh, she may never be able to read or write. Um, she probably won't remember who I was or maybe not even her family. And, and it, it was all very unknown because she was still in this coma. And although I was now out of hospital and knowing that I would make a full recovery, and or, although there was some question marks around my head and all this kind of stuff, I, 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 was, I was doing a lot better. And I, I, I remember... Um, 
my sister lived in Edinburgh at the time, and I, um, on the way from the hospital to going to be with my parents in Inverness, um, I stopped over at my sister's. She was kind of like looking after me. And um, I was just so, uh, just low, you know? I think we um, talk, the scripture talks about dark nights of the soul. And um, I just felt so alone. I felt so, um, just, I had nothing. I felt numb, like I had nothing left. I'd, I'd cried a lot and I'd been um, afraid and all this kind of stuff and I just felt like there was nothing. And I think so many things were kind of pressing on me. Um, in, uh, the accident was my fault. I, I was driving the car, you know. Um, ultimately, the responsibility was on me. I was charged by the police for careless driving. I wasn't driving dangerously, but I, I drove and I crashed the car and I put this girl in, in hospital. And I nearly killed me, nearly killed her. And I just felt enormously guilty. I felt afraid. I didn't know if I'd be able to go back to uni. Um, I didn't know what on earth was going to happen to her. Um, and I just thought, I thought, God, what, where are you? How, how has this happened? Um, and, I, and as I sat there, I, um, and this is no credit to me. This was not because I am holy or because I am a brilliant Christian or because, I, you know, I'm, because I'm brilliant. It had nothing to do with me, actually. Um, but I think because I've been a Christian a while, because I trusted in God and I did, I did believe in God and I thought God was alive, it was one of those moments where I said, uh, for the first, maybe not the first time, but in, in a way I'd never said before, I, I said, God, I need you to be real. Like, I really need you to be real. And I'd, I'd face, you know, growing up, I'd face some, some tricky stuff. You know, my, a close friend of mine drowned in a river when I was 15. Another, another close friend um, committed suicide when I was 19. I, I, I went through a period where I had, um, had problems with, or nearly had serious problems with, with drugs and alcohol and, and relationships. And, and I'd been through this kind of stuff, and it was either stuff that I was just doing to myself or had happened to somebody else that I cared about, but this was different. This is like something, because of me, this has happened to somebody else and me. And I was so low, and, and, I, and I, even at times, I, I would think horrible things, like I, I wish I was hurt more. Actually, I wish, I wish I'd just done this to myself. I really, really, I would do anything to just take all of the, whatever, the horribleness of this situation, because I just hated it. And, um, and I think I, in, in that moment, I just needed God to be real. And I said, look, God, you know, maybe so far in life, things would be okay if it actually it turned out you weren't real. But now I need you to be real. And I prayed um, and I just said, I have no words, God. And I was on my own in this little room at my sister's. And I said, God, I just need you. I've got nothing left. And there was a guitar in that room. And I, I've, I'm quite musical. And uh, my, my journey with God has always, music has always been intertwined with that. It's such an important part of who I am and how I connect with God. And I picked up this guitar and I started playing these kind of chords. And, um, and it, it, was like, it was a song that was in like the back of my mind. I'd never played it before, but it was a song I'd heard growing up in church. And, um, and I just somehow just knew how to play it and I was playing it. And, and it was almost like I'd... I'd my soul in this deep place where I was looking for God found this, this song and I started to sing it and um, I'm going to sing it so apologies if it's terrible but I'm going to close my eyes because this is incredibly embarrassing um, so the song was um, praise you in the morning praise you in the evening praise you when I'm young and when I'm old 
praise you when I'm laughing, praise you when I'm grieving, praise you every season of the soul. If we could see how much your worth, your power, your might, your endless love, then surely we would never cease to praise. And, and I think I get emotional thinking about it now because I think um, it was the first time in my life where I had to step beyond my circumstances and I had to step beyond myself and my guilt and my physical hurt and my, the hurt in my soul. And I looked for God in that place and I found him. And that's not because I'm an amazing holy person who looked for God. It's because actually I just thought, God, I've got nothing left. You have to be real. And I, I chose to praise him. And it it, that moment is still a milestone for me. It still makes me emotional because it changed the way I pray. It changed my relationship with God. It changed the way I worshipped. Because I chose in that moment to say, regardless of anything that's going on, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or the day after that or the day after that. I don't know what's going to happen to this girl or me or life or anything. But I will not be shaken by this that I will choose to praise you in the morning, praise you in the evening, praise you when I'm young, praise you when I'm old, praise you when I'm laughing, praise you when I'm grieving, praise you every season of the soul. And I think just something changed hugely in my relationship with God in that moment. And it, it has changed my life. It continues to change my life. But I think God longs for our honest worship because he wants you. He doesn't want some version of you. He didn't want some version of me where I said a polite prayer and I said, oh Lord, come now in all of your might. He just wants me to be me. And in that moment, he got me. And I think I'll, I'll praise him forever because he was there and he will always be there. And that story, just to finish, because I've spoken longer than you said I could. Um, <laughs> That, to preach. <laughs> that, that, story, that story ended up really well. That, the healings were amazing. The girl, she made a complete recovery, which was a miracle. Um, I made a complete recovery. Uh, it was an amazing turnaround. Phenomenal story. And that, but that doesn't always happen. And it, it did in this one. And I have stories where that didn't happen. Um, but I think, nonetheless, God is faithful. That, that he wants your honest worship because you can trust him with your honesty, he, he can be trusted in. And so, yeah, I think, I think that's immensely important. Thank you. Let's give him a round of applause. <laughs> the most important change that happened on that day was what happened in Josh. The circumstances did begin to change but the change that really happened was the change that happened in you. And the psalmist does the same in verses 5 and 6. His circumstances don't change, but what changes is David himself. He says, I will trust in your unfailing love. I will sing the Lord's praise. And that's a choice that every single one of us have each day. It's a decision of the will. David moves, if you like, from trauma to trust, despair to decision, from being abandoned to adoration, from heartache to hope, from whinging to worship. And that dilemma is at the heart of real prayer and worship. When things don't always go the way that we expect or want or pray, what do we do? How do we cope when we hear of things like Kobe Bryant, the basketball player, 
and his daughter, 13-year-old, who were both killed in a helicopter crash last Sunday, along with seven other people. When we discovered that that morning, at seven o'clock, they'd gone to church. They'd gone to Mass. Kobe Bryant was a devout Roman Catholic, and they'd gone to Mass, and they'd been at the 7 a.m. service. Three hours later, they were face to face with Jesus. But how do you cope with a father and daughter who pray to God at seven o'clock in the morning and two and a half hours later they're killed tragically in fog when their helicopter crashes? How do you cope when things like that happen? How do you reconcile the two? Will we still decide to trust God? Will we still decide Will we resolve to praise God, to worship him, to say that he can be trusted? Not to deny what's going on in our lives. That's not what the psalmist does. He doesn't ignore what's happening. He gives it God both barrels. Tells God how he's feeling. I heard a really helpful thing a couple of years ago from a a Catholic monk called Brother Louis. And he said, about prayer, people think that you have to get in the right state to pray. You have to be in the right mindset to pray. He said, you don't. You just start praying. And as you start to pray, maybe your mindset will change. But the most important thing that you can do is just start to pray. So start to pray when you feel really angry. Start to pray when you feel really bitter. Start to pray when you feel really sad. Start to pray when you feel really confused. Start to pray when you feel that God is miles away. Don't think you have to feel a certain way or feel holy enough in order for God to hear your prayer. Because when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed perhaps the strongest prayer that he ever prayed. Let this cup pass from my lips. His sweat was like blood. Agonizingly, he prayed. When he was on the cross, again, he prayed, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He he told God the Father how he was feeling. And he surrendered to God. And that really is what honest worship, honest prayer is about. It's about saying to God, I don't understand. I don't feel like it. But I'm going to trust you. It's a choice that we face as individuals. It's a choice that we face collectively. This church over the years that I've been here has faced it again and again and again. When Linda Fishbacker died, when Tom Yarrow died, it was incredibly difficult when those untimely deaths happened for us to gather as a church. But I will never forget the Sunday services after Linda died. And I'll never forget the Sunday services after Tom died. When we stood as church and we sang that we still believe that God could be trusted. I'll never forget sitting by my my dad's bedside and, and singing, Bless the Lord, the Matt Redmond song, and singing that third verse, you know, when the end comes and my strength is failing, and singing it over my dad. We'll never forget being with Kathy last year and, and being with her mum and, and singing Highlands as we were saying, I will trust you in the heartache, I'll trust you on the, the mountains, I'll trust you. It's our choice individually, and it's our choice collectively. 
whether we will still be honest with God, but then allow God to be honest with us. That's what happened in the events that we'll remember in a few moments, in the bread and the wine. But as we begin to respond, would you please stand? In a moment, we're going to sing a song that speaks about the fact that God has made it possible for us to come into his presence. There used to be a veil in the, the temple that, that separated the Holy of Holies. It was a place that only one priest once a year could go through. And on the cross, when Jesus died on the cross, that, that, that curtain was, was torn down, it was ripped symbolizing that the barrier between us and God has been taken away. We can now come into God's presence freely, and we can tell him exactly how we're feeling right now. But it's not helpful just to stay stuck in that moment of honesty. He wants to hear that, but he then wants us to move to that attitude of trust and surrender even when we don't feel like it. Let's pray together.